0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Destructive wildfires make it harder for homeowners to find and afford insurance. But fire is only part of the picture.
1: Nobody can forget about hail in Colorado. Northern Colorado, the front range down through southern Colorado is hail alley our most expensive insured catastrophe.
0: What power do homeowners have in the face of rising rates and shrinking options Then how an eviction destroyed a Denver man's life and later for the first time since the pandemic the taste of Ethiopia
2: is back The pillar of Ethiopian culture is sharing that's the reason when we eat we eat together on a big platter you don't get your own plate. Plus, from the Beatles to U2
0: to Brandi Carlisle, a new book captures unforgettable concerts at Red Rocks. CPR is powered by your generosity. And when it comes to membership, monthly donations make a larger gift more manageable. It's why many donors are making the switch from annual giving to monthly giving. Setting up their monthly evergreen membership with a checking or savings account. It's easy to change how and when you give. Email membership at CPR.org. That's membership at CPR.org. And thanks for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Wildfire season has grown so long, it is frankly hard to think of as just a season. After all, the most destructive blaze in state history started at the tail end of December. Sounds of the Marshall Fire in 2021, courtesy Nine News. After disasters like that, it gets tougher to find and afford homeowners insurance, an example of how climate change can reshape the economy and our daily lives. We're going to talk about that and more with Carol Walker, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. It's an industry clearinghouse based in Greenwood Village. And Carol, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Homeowners' premiums are up almost 52% in Colorado in three years, according to the Division of Insurance. That's assuming you can find a company that'll underwrite. Um, let's run through why. And, and perhaps we can start with severe weather fueled by climate change.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, what we're living in Colorado is impacting what you pay for insurance. Because what... We're charged for insurance is what the insurance companies anticipate they'll need to pay out in claims. And it's a cliche, Ryan, but it's the perfect storm. Um, not only do we have escalating catastrophe risk from wildfire, we're number two in the nation for hail insurance claims, but also the market conditions where we're seeing skyrocketing inflation, we still have COVID supply chain issues where there's shortages of everything from drywall to lumber to labor shortage, some sub- subcontractors. These are all things that are affecting what we pay for property insurance. And unfortunately, it puts pressure on the marketplace as insurance companies grapple with trying to balance those market conditions and the severity of that with our escalating catastrophe risk and the propensity that we're going to have to pay more clients.
0: Let's talk about inflation. I just want to put a finer point on that. If construction materials are more expensive, and frankly, labor is more expensive, and the supply chain is sort of choked up, uh, all of those things affect the cost of repairing and rebuilding, which plays into insurance. Uh, Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, what your insurance company cares about is not the market value of your home, but it's the cost to repair and rebuild your home, or your business in today's dollars. And unfortunately, we're living in larger, more expensive homes. The cost associated with repair and rebuild is higher. Again, we have contractor shortages, delays. These are all things that make insurance more expensive because not only are we seeing an increase in the number of claims because of increased catastrophes, but the cost to pay those claims.
0: Is this also about where we live Uh, that many of us are choosing to live in wildfire-prone areas in particular?
1: Absolutely. Um, We have more homes, more cars, more businesses in the path of those fires. So um, everyone wants to live in Colorado, right? Um, And unfortunately, the State Forest Service estimates that half of our population lives in what is considered a high-risk wildfire area. Add hail to that. Unfortunately, our booming population and more people moving into these areas. And it's not just our mountain communities and our foothills for wildfire risk, as we saw play out with the Marshall Fire you know, years ago in the Waldo Canyon fire. These are urban, suburban neighborhoods with many homes in them. And the chance of having a catastrophic wildfire is very high.
0: We'll get back to hail in a moment, but perhaps... You can hear eyes rolling across Colorado right now as people think about poor insurance companies. I mean, I think a natural reaction to seeing your rates skyrocket or your coverage disappear is these companies simply, you know, aren't making money hand over fist. And so they're leaving or they're raising rates. I don't feel sorry for insurance companies. What what is the profit picture in Colorado?
1: Ryan, no one expects you to feel sorry for your insurance company. You, know, you love to hate on your insurance company. It's a product you buy hoping you will never have to use. But in fact, insurance companies are losing money, especially like places like Colorado, where the profitability picture is very bleak. Um, Colorado is ranked third worst in the nation for profitability over the last 10 years. They've lost on average 12% on the property insurance market, some years much more than that. So as you continue a pattern of paying out more in claims and the anticipation of that next big catastrophic event is very high, at some point we reach that tipping point where insurance companies have to make business decisions. And uh, for all of us, what that means is, I think we do have to adjust to this new normal where our homes are, for most of us, our largest asset. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to figure out within that household budget, that insurance premiums will be higher because we don't want that next Marshall Fire and have A, not insurance companies, not in the business of insurance in Colorado, but not able to pay those claims. In places like Louisiana, where they haven't done a good job of balancing those scales, they have insolvencies every week announced from insurance companies. In other places like California and Florida, where there's not just catastrophic issues, but also, statutory and regulatory issues, which made it a tough place to do business, we are seeing insurance companies leave. In Colorado, we have an opportunity to do better and talk about some real solutions about how to keep a competitive, stable market, keep insurance companies at least on the profitable, black side of things, and keep people in insurance and in their homes and able to pay out their mortgage.
0: This past session Colorado lawmakers created essentially an insurer of last resort, something known as the fair plan, fair access to insurance requirements. The state tells companies to bind together and share the risk. Is is that the sort of solution you're talking about there?
1: Yes, a fair plan, and we have them in up to 40 states, is a state insurer of last resort. And it Seems counterintuitive, Ryan, that's the challenging part, because it really needs to be an insurer of last resort for property, not an insurer of choice. We've seen mistakes made in places like Florida, where there's so much political pressure to make it the biggest insurer in the state. Really, what we need to do is have it a pressure valve release for people who truly need it. Within the bill that the legislature passed last year, um, it has restrictions in it, to limit the number of people in the fair plan. So frankly, it doesn't go bankrupt and could bankrupt the state. And they're charging rates that they need to charge to be able to pay out claims. You have to have at least three declinations from three private insurers. Hmm. There's caps for property of $750,000 for a residential property for insurance, $2 million for a business. So we think that the legislature got it right in terms of keeping this a small fund from the state for people who truly can't find insurance elsewhere, doesn't compete with the private market. But if we let go of those reins, we go down the road of a Florida or Louisiana, we could be in real trouble. What we're really trying to do is keep the private competitive market here and, have a solution for people who truly need it, and then get them out of the fair plan and back into the private market.
0: Oh, I see, so that there could be some interplay there. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Carol Walker, Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association, the industry clearinghouse based in Greenwood Village. And we're speaking against the backdrop of rising homeowners' premiums, uh, less availability of coverage, This is true in the face of climate change, in the face of issues with the supply chain and inflation as well. Do you think a day will come when the availability of insurance or the lack of it winds up dictating where people live? Like, sure, you can build a house there, you can move into a place there, but you're not going to be able to get a mortgage because you're not going to be able to get insurance, etc.?
1: Well, there's no silver bullet to these things. More people are moving into high-risk areas, and what we define as a high-risk area is also evolving. So we need to be working together as developers, planners, and also consider what does that look like for the people that live in there, especially as we do new construction and develop in high-risk places, whether that's a hurricane-prone area or a wildfire-prone area. The good news for those of us that live in... The high-risk wildfire areas is the science shows us there is much we can do to put the odds in their favor of losing a home in a wildfire. Um, there are scientifically proven steps for mitigation, and if you're doing them on an individual property as a homeowner, if the entire community is banding together, and that is as a state, we're looking at how we actually reduce the risk of wildfire, that's where we start to get to some real solutions. So these just can't be insurance solutions. Those are temporary solutions. Insurance companies are just responding to a more challenging marketplace. On the other side of things, we as a country and a state and communities and homeowners need to be following the science and doing the mitigation. So do we have to look at where people are living? Absolutely. But we also have to look at what we're doing from a mitigation standpoint to make these communities and homes safer
0: when I sign up for health insurance, they often ask if I'm a smoker, right? And that affects my rights. And when I sign up for automobile insurance, they say, Do you wear your seatbelt or you know, do you have accidents in the past? You know, these are elements that affect the cost of a policy. So d- does fireproofing, wising a home? I've heard this called hardening a home against wildfire will that affect availability and rates specifically?
1: So insurance is the financial incentive to do the right thing when it comes to wildfire mitigation. Um, it started back after the Hayman fire in 2000 where insurance companies started requiring mitigation to get and keep affordable insurance. Uh-huh. Now yeah. most companies have those programs and notifications in place. So um, if you live in a wildfire prone area, you've received that notification or even unfortunately a non-renewal because you're unwilling to do the proper mitigation. So um, it's the right thing to do from a risk standpoint. It's also the right thing to do from a financial standpoint. Not only will it help you keep insurance, but it help you keep insurance with what we call a preferred or more standard insurance company, which keeps your rates lower.
0: I think it's important to say that there are individual actions a homeowner can take. And then I think you alluded to the notion of a community taking action so that the hardening, if you will, against wildfire is true across a town, for instance. Um, And given how we know that a fire can spread, uh, those collective actions are important too. Speak to those for a bit.
1: That's absolutely a parallel track to the real solution of reducing risk. If an individual homeowner does all the right things, some of them are common sense things, you know, get the needles off the roof, mow the grass, um, get the wood pile off the wood deck. But some of these things are more impactful, absolutely, if it, the entire community is doing it. There was a bill actually passed this last session that will offer grants to community mitigation programs and individuals that do home hardening, because some of those common sense things are great. But also because of our high risk it may require an investment of a new roof it's more fire resistant fire resistant plants depending on your risk retaining walls these are all things that we need to not be doing just as a homeowner Mm -hmm. but the entire community because fire knows no boundaries Um, you're doing everything great if your neighbor isn't that fire is going to spread as we saw in the marshall fire it ran along a fence line we had a densely populated area so with this bill that was passed for home hardening, that's going to help. There was also another bill passed that will create what we call a WUI, which means wildland urban interface yep. statewide board that will at least have a common low denominator of what codes we should have for building across the state that will be more fire resistant.
0: Some concrete actions there. In our final few minutes, I do want to talk about hail. You refer to the Front Range, frankly, the really the whole corridor here as hail alley is hail something you can harden yourself against
1: it actually is fire is a much better example because Uh there is so much we can do to put the odds in our favor but when it comes to hail and at least the roof which is the most vulnerable part of your home we have testing for hail impact resistant roofs and property So uh, there's actually an insurance industry lab down in South Carolina where we start ember fires. We recreate hail storms. And it shows us that there are products that will make our homes more hail resistant. So that's something we also need to be looking at and investing in here in Hail Alley. Huh.
0: And, And that's the biggest source of loss, right, in Colorado hail?
1: It still is. Historically, it's our most expensive insured catastrophe um, the biggest of them all so far, anyway, oh. was May of 2017, where we had was $2.4 billion from one 45-minute hail store because it cut such a wide swath across the state.
0: Carol, thanks for the perspective. I appreciate your time.
1: Oh, we appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: Carol Walker, Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association based in Greenwood Village. And we'll be right back with why eviction isn't just a housing issue, but a mental health one as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at cpr.org/careers. Evictions are up nationwide, and a case in Denver raises questions about what help there is and access to that help. A 25-year-old man died by suicide as sheriff's deputies knocked on his door to remove him from his home. Denverites' Kyle Harris joins us. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Ryan. Indeed, this discussion will touch on suicide. Kyle, the man who died is Darius Davis. How did you start reporting on his story?
3: Back in October, Denver Police tweeted that somebody had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound during an eviction. No news sites covered his death. But I looked further into it, and I connected with his family. His mom actually invited me to a memorial flag football game where I spoke with some of his friends, teammates, and relatives. Kevin Beatty, Denverite's photographer, and I also attended his viewing and funeral. And His mom really wanted to understand what went wrong and also what could have been different. So I started reporting on his life and his death, how evictions are carried out and what policies advocates believe could help avoid evictions and especially this sort of tragic outcome.
0: Let's put this into context. What is the state of evictions?
3: Since mid-March of 2020, when the pandemic shutdowns began, there have been more than 2.4 million evictions in the country. Denver has also seen a spike in evictions that exceeds pre-pandemic levels. There isn't much right now in the way of emergency rental assistance funding, and people who are working on the front lines of the eviction crisis don't see those numbers going down without some sort of policy intervention.
0: What's causing the rise?
3: Most people are being evicted simply because they can't afford rent, and that was definitely the case with Darius. He worked two jobs as a security guard and also at a restaurant, but it still was not enough. Housing costs, they've risen dramatically and they've outpaced the increases in wages.
0: Yeah, And didn't eviction slow during the pandemic, though?
3: That's correct. Initially. So in 2020, there were limited eviction moratoriums for nonpayment of rent. Those did reduce the number of evictions for a short time, and the last one expired in 2021. Then to help keep people housed, the federal government made emergency rental assistance money available to cities and states. That has not been renewed. And so, as that money disappeared, it became harder for tenants to find ways to pay what they owed.
0: So, in a way, the pandemic may have just delayed the inevitable for some of these folks. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, and the assistance.
3: That's possible, it. for sure.
0: Which brings us to your story about Darius Davis. Who was he?
3: So, Darius was a 25 year old, like you said. He came from this big and supportive family. He was an athlete. He was a coach. He grew up in the Betcher Boys and Girls Club. He was loved by this huge community. And people viewed him very much as a natural leader. So last summer, he launched a podcast called Just a Regular Guy, in which he gave mental health advice to fellow black men. But yeah, this is episode three of the Just a Regular Guy podcast, man. This is your host, Lil' Duck. And I hope y'all had a good day, and I want y'all to know
0: Try to take a step in a better direction anytime you can. What were Davis's living conditions?
3: So he had been living in a 350-square-foot apartment in an old triplex in the Spear neighborhood. He paid $1,250 in rent, and he fell behind by a month in rent, and then he was served eviction papers.
0: Those eviction papers
3: were filed by a prominent law firm. Yes, they were. So that's Cheddar Sulzer P.C., Uh, They brand themselves the number one eviction firm in Colorado. The company's name shows up on many eviction cases in the state. And in fact, Cheddar Solter is the subject of two federal class action lawsuits that claim the law firm is stealing money under the guise of attorney's fees and
0: court costs. So what happened to Darius Davis in court?
3: Sadly, Darius didn't end up going to court. Uh, If he had, he could have connected with legal support and perhaps other help. He kept the eviction secret from his family, who said they would have helped. And he ended up losing his case by default. A couple months later, Denver sheriff deputies knocked on his door Uh, while they were there trying to evict him. A gunshot rang out and the deputies took cover. When police arrived later, they found Darius dead in the closet of an apartment he couldn't afford.
0: Were there signs he was struggling with mental illness?
3: Most of his family and friends didn't notice he suffered from mental health issues, but he did post about them occasionally on social media and talked about the mental health struggles of fellow black men on his podcast. Weeks before he died, his mom had actually called the police non-emergency line for support. Um, The police said there was nothing they could do because he had never threatened to kill himself or hurt others directly. I think it's fair to say that anyone facing eviction may be dealing with a serious mental health emergency, Evictions considered a public health issue by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Oh, really? Ties between suicide and mental health issues and eviction are well established by research.
0: Makes sense. Home is safety, you know.
3: Exactly. exactly. Evictions also tied to a whole bunch of other health issues. So you have heart disease, respiratory illness, drug addiction, and more. And of course, many evictions result in a person becoming homeless.
0: Are there systems in place to identify the struggles tenants facing eviction deal with?
3: Well, when the sheriff evicts someone, there's no real investigation into their mental health or whether they're a risk to themselves or others. So the only real chance someone facing eviction gets support is when they show up to court or if the sheriff deputy is carrying out the eviction. Give the person a list of resources. Major Derek Wynn of the Denver Sheriff's Department said that helping people in moments of trauma is actually one of the rewards of the job. Denver's Public Safety Department generally does use mental health interventions as part of of the work that they do. So we have co-responder programs where mental health workers sometimes show up with police. There's also the Support Team Assisted Response Program, also known as the STAR program. They respond to emergency calls that don't require an armed response for a police officer.
0: But there just aren't the same things in place for evictions.
3: There are not. There are no housing counselors, no mental health professionals, no advocates from homeless service nonprofits that show up for evictions. It is just armed deputies in uniform. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Are there cities that are handling evictions differently, better?
3: Avoiding a no-payment eviction is one of the ways cities are addressing the crisis. During the pandemic, Philadelphia started requiring mediation between landlords and tenants facing eviction before many cases could be filed in court. That gives tenants a chance to connect with housing counselors and emergency rental assistance. It's good for landlords and tenants alike. So far, that hasn't really been a priority discussed much by Colorado policymakers. So generally, in that last step of eviction, when law enforcement shows up, there are no cities that are really thinking a lot about finding support there.
0: What discussions have there been about policy?
3: So last year, there were a number of, of different strategies for reducing evictions, supporting renters that took place in the city and state. There was just cause for eviction legislation. That would have made it harder for landlords to evict tenants. That did not pass. So there was a proposal that would have allowed municipalities to pass rent control measures. That was voted down in committee. The state, has a shortage of housing, which has led to high costs. Governor Jared Polis tried to pass land use legislation to make it easier to build dense housing statewide. That also failed. Local communities thought that undoing single-family zoning would hurt their community's character. And Denver voters weighed whether to make landlords pay a fee to fund free eviction defense attorneys for all Denverites facing eviction. That also did not pass.
0: Oh, almost like public defenders for eviction exactly okay what other options are there
3: there are many other things that haven't really been debated the various advocates i spoke to proposed especially at the end of the eviction process
0: right which you've said has so little support
3: yep so for example cities could revisit whether it makes sense to have sheriff deputies carry out evictions alone or maybe there should also be mental health professionals or housing counselors on the scene of an eviction to avoid crises and and homelessness As advocates and lawmakers are getting ready for the next legislative session, renter protections and housing policy, again, are going to be a a hotly debated topic.
0: Kyle, thanks for bringing this story to us. Thanks for having me. Kyle Harris of Denverite. Read his reporting at Denverite.com. And if you or someone you know needs mental health help, dial 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline i'm ryan warner and colorado matters continues in the next half hour with a taste of ethiopia you're with cpr news and krcc
1: On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, how drugs and alcohol derailed singer songwriter PB Seabird's dreams. Johnny Cash and June Carter told me how much they love this song.
4: Life coming at
1: you fast. Right. I was so insecure that I had to drink. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by Step Denver.
0: It is half Ethiopian restaurant and half Ethiopian grocery store, but it is wholly under the watch of Zebiba Ahmed.
4: I pretty much cover every aspect in the store and the restaurant. I wait tables, and sometimes I cook, and I cut meat.
0: Megananya is in a fairly unremarkable strip mall in Aurora, but inside, diners sit on hand-carved chairs and under thatched roofs, Then there are the store's shelves.
4: So there's berbere. Berbere is a spice that we use to cook the food. And it's the big hot chili powder. That's ambasha. And it's bread made from flour. Mainly we eat it with tea, hot tea. And sambusa. It's a flour pocket. We fill it up with lentils. But you can fill it up with different kind of stuff. So we fry it. And then it's good to go.
0: You'll find foods like these Saturday in Denver at the Taste of Ethiopia. The event returns for the first time since the pandemic and Megananya will be there. So Ahmed and her team have a lot of cooking to do.
4: They're gonna make the main dish, they're gonna be tips, which is it's made from beef and they'll be using onions, olive oil, garlic, ginger, rosemary.
0: What is, uh, when you think of tips? I'm, is that something you've eaten since you were a child? Yes, What, what of does course. it make you think, what, what memories does tips bring up?
4: It uh, makes me think of my mom and back home because when we want to eat some meat that's the special dish that she makes, that's what it reminds me of.
0: Is yours as good as
4: hers? Absolutely not, hers is the best. Hers is the best, but she's the one who taught us here. She was here a couple years back. She's the one who she puts everything together.
0: One of the organizers of Saturday's Taste of Ethiopia is Nebiyu Asfau, and we sat at one of the hot tables
2: I described to talk food, culture, and history. The first wave of Ethiopians arrived in Colorado in the early to mid-70s during the revolution in Ethiopia and the monarchy was overthrown so there was an influx of uh, immigrants and refugees In the 80s there was war and uh, the great famine that killed a million people that also caused a lot of people to escape and then in the 90s uh, the diversity visa was abundantly given to Ethiopia by the US government so that brought another wave of folks here And during the refugee crisis, Colorado, the state of Colorado in the 80s, was one of the handful of states that opened its doors for Ethiopian refugees. So quite a significant number came here. And then family reunion and things like that. So the community started growing. We're also mountain people. Ethiopia is a very mountainous uh, country. So it feels like home. It is home. In front of me and Osval
0: are very full plates of tibs and veggies and a spongy bread called injera. You use it instead of utensils. It would be too much
2: food for one person. And that's the point, he says. The pillar of Ethiopian culture is sharing. I mean, that's the theme everywhere. That's the reason when we eat, we eat together on a big platter. You don't get your own plate. When we drink coffee, you don't go pick up coffee to go. You sit around... A table and you go through the whole coffee ceremony process it's almost religious so family is together and then as a community with our neighbors one thing we brought here is that we believe we are our brother's keeper so we just want to share with everyone what we have we think is beautiful our heritage is beautiful and we want to preserve that and also our children like I said we're on the third generation are all Americans so it is an American festival just like the Greek, the Italian festival. Uh, But it's important for our community because this is our opportunity to share our culture and to show our contribution into the melting pot. Because we've made significant contribution in Colorado for half a century, but we want to be seen now as part of the mainstream society.
0: More broadly, Asfa thinks people are rediscovering Africa.
2: But this time, Africans are wanting an equal footing and showing all the beautiful things that we have to offer. You know, in previous decades, we were looked down upon. But I think the world, you know, with the Internet and the world coming smaller and closer together, people are realizing how beautiful African music is and how much influence it actually has on American music, fashion, fashion how colorful and beautiful it is fashion designers are now going to africa to find the color coordination and all this that we just did you know naturally as, as a culture so there is a lot of cultural export from africa happening a, at the moment and as long as it continues to be in a way that's respecting the indigenous culture africa has a lot to contribute to the world Indeed, including
0: music, which he says will feature prominently at The Taste of Ethiopia, Saturday from 10 to 9 at Parkfield Lake Park in Northeast Denver. Nebu Asfal is one of the organizers, and we met at Megananya Restaurant and Grocery in Aurora. By the way, you can see photos from our visit at denverite.com, where my colleague Desiree Matherin has a story up. It's that time again to read together.
3: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: We have chosen our next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a novel, and it is unforgettable. Go as a River is set in Iola, Colorado, a real-life town that was gradually evacuated, then flooded to make way for a reservoir. The author is Shelley Reed of Gunnison.
1: Well, I think it's a little piece of Colorado history that a lot of Coloradoans aren't even aware of. Blue Mesa Reservoir as the largest reservoir in Colorado to so many people is just this absolutely beautiful lake. But knowing the history and knowing there are actually three towns at the bottom of that beautiful lake really give it, to me at least, so much more interest and historical depth than most people are aware of. So I wanted to tell that story.
0: Her displaced characters are peach farmers wondering what their future will hold. Go as a River is also about the displacement of indigenous people long before. So pick up a copy and read with us. Then, icing on the cake, be my guest, September 13th in Grand Junction. I'll record an interview on stage with author Shelley Reed. Details and tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. Once again, the book is Go as a River by Shelley Reed. And all the information you need is at cpr.org slash turn the page. Okay, we'll be right back with how Red Rocks has rocked over time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Coors is beer. And yet for a few decades, its main product was targeted to babies. When Prohibition came to Colorado on New Year's Day 1916, Coors was
4: forced to pour its entire stock of beer into Clear Creek, 17,000 gallons in all. Unable to brew, Coors could close down or it could adapt.
0: Well, they had lots of malted barley and their brewing equipment could easily be converted to producing malted milk powder. So they did and advertised their malted milk as the best food for infants next to mother's milk. Malted milk powder was a staple in soda shops and bakeries and in candy. Adolph Coors Jr. struck a deal to be the main supplier to the Mars Candy Company, a move that saved the brewery, in time for the end of Prohibition in '33. Coors went back to brewing beer in Golden, but continued to make malted milk powder well into the 50s. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Red Rocks hosted one of its most famous concerts 40 years ago. The 1983 show and video shoot were career making for a young Irish act. As music journalist G Brown told me, U2's performance, even in lousy weather, put the band and the venue on the map. You were there that night covering the concert for the Denver Post. Yes. What do you remember? Just
5: seeing a a young band who I had championed for a few years uh, turn everything that was a disadvantage to their advantage. It really was memorable. band had invested every nickel they had into doing this they got on the radio called every radio station in town begging kids to come out i'm always fond of remembering the edges quote that he'd like to thank the man who invented the wide angle lens because it made the 5,000 kids who were there look like uh, an arena full
0: right i think there were it was like helicopter coverage of that concert that they had hired a,
5: a bird to go up yep uh that bonfires on the rocks uh, Michael Hutchins of NXS. Uh, several years later, when his band performed at Red Rocks, they showed up and said, "Where are the bonfires?" They thought it. They thought that stuff came with the place because they had seen the
0: YouTube video. Some of them. let see. G. Brown, executive director of the Colorado Music Experience, wrote a history of the amphitheater, and he's just updated it with more stories and more photographs to delight fans. The book's called Red Rocks, The Concert Years, and she welcome back. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing well. Very good. Guitar great Carlos Santana writes in the book's foreword, Red Rocks is not just dirt and stones and sky. It's a temple, a shrine. God is a good architect. But God was not its only architect. Will you remind us briefly how Red Rocks was created?
5: privately held land in the early part of the 20th century, uh, sold to the city of Denver in the early 30s, and then the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, part of FDR's New Deal, putting people to work. Uh, They built that place over a period of seven years, inclusive of 1936 to 1941, with only one piece of motorized equipment, Ryan. They had a truck. They built that place with dynamite, picks, and shovels, and wheelbarrows, and uh, an amazing testament to uh, what that particular program accomplished. They built a lot of parks across the nation, obviously, but Red Rocks, certainly their crowning achievement in my mind.
0: Well, it seems poetic to me that Red Rocks helped bring us out of the Great Depression because seeing a show there can also just bring you out of... (laughs) Your own, you know, bad mood. Yeah. Yeah. It might feed into an economic depression, but that's a different story, right? Is that about the price of tickets these (laughs) days? Yeah. Maybe a little editorial there. The fees. Oh, that's fine. I think anyone who goes to a concert knows what you're talking about. (laughs) Last year, I put a call out asking for people's Red Rocks regrets. That is, concerts they missed, but really wished they hadn't. Diana Krall is on that list for me. Do you have a Red Rocks regret? I guess it would be the Beatles in 1964, Uh only
5: because I was not of age. That's an interesting subtext to the Red Rocks history in that back then, if you didn't have a ride up to Red Rocks, Mm. you weren't going. A kid in Cleveland, for instance, could have gotten on the bus to go downtown to the auditorium to see the Beatles. But there was no I-70, there was no access. Alameda Avenue was the main artery up to Red Rocks back in the 60s. And uh, that show, I've spent a lot of time debunking the factoid that that was the only show that the Beatles did not sell out on their two American tours, which on paper is accurate. They sold 7,000 tickets Mm -hmm. out of the 9,000. But Every high school kid in town knew that you could sneak into Red Rocks. Concert security did not exist <laughs> as we know it now. And you look at the pictures, there's 10,000 people in there. They're spilling over the rocks. But uh, anyway, it's or, not that we were a bunch of rubes, Ryan. We were just
0: a little nefarious. Aha, so. or cheap. <laughs> One of the two. One of the two. I, I wonder then if, if it's also true if you asked. A hundred people, if they were at the Beatles show, a thousand would say yes. Did more people take credit for being there maybe than who were? I think that's a reality of concerts. We
5: played the U2 thing, I guarantee you. There's a hundred thousand people that were at that (laughs) show, if you ask them.
0: A staple of Red Rock's recent seasons are collaborations between some superstar and the Colorado Symphony. Why don't we hear them with Brandy Carlyle from a couple of years ago?
4: That's not too late.
0: Oh my gosh, I have goosebumps. As if you needed to make Brandy Carlyle any bigger. (laughs) Yeah. It is possible, though. These symphonic concerts are something of a throwback to some of the earliest Red Rocks shows, no? Before the rock and roll era, that's all that was at Red Rocks.
5: In 1941, when it officially opened, the park wasn't used for a while because of World War II. Um, It was simply a picnicking area. But when they did gear up for concert activity, it was symphony orchestras. It was operas and uh, the odd performer. But it wasn't until the Beatles played that the rock era kicked off, as as we know it, the concert-going
0: experience with amplification, if you will. So the Beatles, I suppose you could say, paved the way for the likes of Bruce Springsteen. I learned that his first ever outdoor concert was at Red Rocks? First ever on a
5: national tour. Right. He might have played in a park back in <laughs> Jersey somewhere. but Yes. Uh, yes, in support of the Darkness on the Edge of Town album in 1978. Came to Red Rocks. He did not want to perform outdoors. Uh, his agent and... Uh, his manager had to talk him into it. He believed rock and roll was an indoor sport. I'm not sure he's wrong a lot of times. But uh, he showed up, said, nice place you got here, a bunch of big rocks, and proceeded to play for a three-hour mar- marathon set, as was his want back then. And, uh, yeah, very memorable.
0: Uh, there's still plenty of the current Red Rock season to go. Coming headliners include Beck, My Morning Jacket, Duran Duran, Janelle Monáe, and, yes, Brandy Carlyle. Sting as well. And I understand you have a memorable story interviewing Sting backstage in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
5: it's... It was an interesting circumstance. I had an interview set up. I, I'd spoken with Sting over the years, uh, when he was with the police. This was his first solo tour. Uh I showed up, and they said that he was getting a massage backstage. And if I, could wait, that would be great. No problem. Sat down on a rock and, proceeded to wait for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. They came out, said he's still on the table. Can you wait? Sure. Literally. 75 minutes later, they said, he's still on the table, but come on back. (laughs) And I interviewed Sting, the superstar, uh, as he was finishing up a massage, and it was Memorable because he was just a pile of goo, right? <laughs> just totally relaxed in a state of euphoria and answering my questions in this free associating way about uh, fields of gold and, you know, like the amber waves of grain blowing in the wind. Wow. Was just rambling on. But I always gave him credit. A guy like that, a superstar who was comfortable
0: enough in his own skin to be open like that yeah uh, and right in literally in his skin there on the massage table <laughs> i'm now good. wondering if we should put one in the colorado matters studio to keep guests at ease red rocks made national news in june uh, because of that intense storm interrupting the lewis tomlinson concert golf ball sized hail injured dozens seven people hospitalized uh, less severe weather was indeed part of that atmospheric U2 video 40 years ago under a blood red sky. Do you have weather stories?
5: There's a ton of weather stories. That just comes with the territory if you buy a ticket to Red Rocks. One of my favorites is a Jackson Brown, Steve Earl, and Keb Mo concert. Uh, Keb and Steven had played, and Jackson was getting ready to take the stage, and a lightning storm moved in. You could smell the ozone yes. milling around, and it knocked out the power grid, not just at Red Rocks, but in the town of Morrison. People on the stage just shouting at the crowd without amplification to go home, go home. Torrents of water rushing down the stairs, making him into a slip and slide. The funny part is that Jackson, a rather sanguine singer-songwriter by nature, and he, uh, it was a backstage thing that they were going to sing happy birthday to one of the roadies and have a little cake. And a production manager had to come up and say, Jackson, you don't get it. You're 70 feet underground. We're on emergency generator backup power. You won't be able to see your hand in front of your face in about 30 <gasps> minutes. You got to get the heck out of here. And he did. And but he did. I thought it was sweet. that he just, <laughs> said, eh, We'll just roll with it. I don't I don't care. Yeah.
0: Since the first edition of your book, G. Brown, there was a pandemic. So live music was really at a standstill. And Denver's own Nathaniel Rateliff recorded a live album at the venue in 2020. In fact, the cover art to Red Rocks 2020 is an eerie photo of rows and rows and rows of empty seats. Um, The record really captures the mood of that summer.
5: I can't tell you what it has been like to be here this evening with no one else here. as we look up into 10,000 empty seats my heart breaks that we can't share the same air and we can't hold each other anymore
2: we'll leave you with these last two songs I'm blessed to be here with my best friends and my family peace to all of you out there See fall apart. Hmm.
0: What did Ratliff share in your interview with him for the book?
5: Very much the same sentiment, that the weight of the, what the world was feeling during the pandemic was heavy. And uh, I love that guy. He's <laughs> very well spoken to what everyone was enduring then. Red Rock suffered like every other live music venue during the pandemic. It's incredible that they've bounced back in the biggest way possible. Billboard magazine, the leading industry trade magazine, has cited Red Rocks as the most ticketed venue in the world. In the world, through. like, yeah, so, eat
0: your heart out, Madison Square Garden and <laughs> Royal
5: Albert Hall. In the last two years running. So uh, what a great time to codify the history of what got us to this point.
0: Um, do you think that Red Rocks, back to its New Deal roots, do you think it's... Fulfilling its mission. Well, I
5: think that it's still special for anyone who attends and anyone who plays there. The circumstances have certainly changed. Uh, Certainly, the number of shows they do up there is astounding. It was front page news back in the 80s when they did 55 concerts at Red Rocks last summer. And now it's year round. So. things have changed the concert industry has
0: changed but red rocks is forever i think as well of the the film series film on the rocks that takes place there the yoga classes that take place there yeah it's smaller than a concert venue in that regard
5: always been a park so um that's good i certainly celebrate the more generous use of our greatest natural attraction but uh I do kind of miss the old days. (laughs) Well, it it wasn't a career achievement to play Red Rocks, like playing Madison Square Garden.
0: Thanks so much for being with us, G. Love seeing you, Ryan. Thank you. Music journalist and historian G. Brown heads the Colorado Music Experience, and he's the author of Red Rocks' The Concert Years, which has just been updated. We'll leave you with a track from a vinyl-only release, Red Rocks Live... Here are Colorado's own Lumineers with Cleopatra.
3: I was kid, I was young and an
0: When you by my mattress, you asked for money. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my rock star colleagues... Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Cotton Pete Kramer.
1: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher
3: Matt Hers, Tom Hess Michael Hughes Chris Ketchum Pedro Lumbraño Shane Rumsey Chandra Thomas-Whitfield
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.